I think we can now say absolutely fundamentally that the most important aspect of your mental and physical health, your well-being, your longevity is the relationships you create with other people. Because that is sort of tallying alongside quitting smoking. And it's much, much stronger, for example, than maintaining a healthy weight. So it's actually, in a way, the missing health phenomenon. Because we, in the way, we take our relationships for granted. You know, we do all those things which you're told to be healthy, like, you know, drink lots of water, eat the right food, exercise, all those sorts of things. But nobody actually says, do you know what? Just go out and have a lovely cup of tea with a friend. Well, that is the voice of Anna Machin. She's an evolutionary anthropologist. Love, she says, is integral to our health and happiness. This is the Liz Earle Wellbeing Show, the podcast helping us all have a better second half. I'm Liz Earle and my mission is to find ways for all of us to thrive in later life by investing in our health and our well-being today. Now, did you do anything to mark Valentine's Day? Just gone, I wonder. I remember the excited anticipation of whether or not I'd received any Valentine's Day cards as a teenager, always miraculously managed to receive at least one, I suspect, sent by my mother, which is probably why I send them to my own kids. Shh, don't tell them. Well, no value judgments here either way. You know, we all express love in our own ways. And I guess we all have our own definitions of what love is even, to be honest. It's one of those strange things that we all talk about as if we're discussing the same thing, but we'll never really know if we experience it in the same way as anyone else. For me, I guess love is putting someone ahead of myself or perhaps submitting to losing a little bit of control over how I feel or behave as love or passion perhaps overtakes rationality and reason. But ultimately, it's about feeling very happy. And in fact, the longest study ever conducted on human happiness recently revealed that our relationships are the key. Anna Machen, who's been researching love in all its forms for two decades, has come to a similar conclusion in her book, Why We Love, The Definitive Guide to Our Most Fundamental Need. Need being the crucial word there. Anna also hosts the podcast, How We're Wired, which explores how our brains underpin our experiences, our emotions and our behaviour. So what is going on in our brains when we love? And how does love affect our physical and mental health? Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Anna, welcome. I'm so looking forward to getting into the nuances of what love actually is and why it's so vital to our health and survival, I guess, as humans. Excellent. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, as I mentioned there in the intro, everyone seems to have their own definition of love. What angle do you as an anthropologist come at all this from? It's <laughs> a tricky question. As an anthropologist, my job is to explain a phenomenon or a behaviour or whatever it might be at every possible level of explanation. So we get a really good handle on what that particular phenomenon is. And, and when you do it with love, it's incredibly complicated. So what I've had to do over the last 20 years is really try and answer the question, what is love, 
at every possible level of explanation. So we can we can answer it at the evolutionary level, where the answer is it's about survival. We can answer it at the genetic level and look at which genes influence how you feel and how you behave when you're in love. We can look at it at the psychological level and look at the concept of attachment, which is mm. what uh, defines our closest relationships. And we can look at it at sort of the social level. So what do our laws say about love? How does our upbringing affect how we love? So it's a really complicated answer to what is actually a, a, a very simple question in one sense. <laughs> Do you know, I I was really struck by your book, actually, which is brilliant uh, on all the different facets. You know, you've just touched on a few there. I love looking at epigenetics, for example, and Mm. realising that we can influence our genetic makeup. And, you know, we'll we'll get into kind of some of those epigenetic pathways and talk about things like dopamine and serotonin, because I thought that was Mm. also fascinating. And then, of course, you know, I think on social media, when we look at relationships, we're hearing a lot of those words about attachment, anxious attachment, avoidant and all of those. So I'd, I'd love to, you know, do a deep dive into those as well. <laughs> Can I just ask you kind of as an overview, you know, what was it about love as an area of study that kind of captivated you? Was it that it has all these different strands to it and, and is just such a fundamental thing that perhaps we don't really kind of sit down and analyse too much? I think so. I think I love a knotty question. I love a question that's going to make my head hurt. So that kind of attracted me in the first place. And I think also I started as a primatologist, actually, before I studied humans. And there, all you're studying actually is relationships just in a different species. And they're fascinating relationships. It's like a soap opera. And then when I moved on and I joined Oxford and I joined a research group that was looking at the neuroscience of close human relationships, I kind of got given the job of doing those really close ones defined by love. So those between obviously romantic love, but also parental love, friendships, all those sorts of things. And as an anthropologist, it's a fascinating area because it literally infiltrates every fibre of your being. Every biological and psychological mechanism is involved in love, but also every aspect of your daily life. So the decisions you take every day, the rules you live by, everything, if you pair it all the way back and you take it back to where it came from, it comes from love and it comes from the relationships you have. So for an anthropologist, it's absolutely fascinating. You know, love isn't uniquely human. Other animals do experience Mm. love. But what we've done to it is we've made it so complex that that aspect of love is uniquely human. Therefore, as an anthropologist, I'd be doing a disservice, really, to not study something. I think sometimes it gets belittled as a concept oh it's just love and it's all wishy-washy and you know gills like and all that sort of thing and I think particularly as a female scientist sometimes I get accused of doing something Mm. terribly easy and wishy-washy but actually when you when you really drill down when you pair everything else away that makes us very complex all we have is love and all we have is the relationships that we exist within so for me it is a fundamental aspect of humanity and an integral part of our well-being then and something that we mustn't overlook oh, but must look at generating completely, more of, perhaps. <laughs> absolutely, completely. And I think we I think we dismiss that too quickly. I think mm. we need to really focus on that health side of it. Mm. You were finishing writing your book during the pandemic and we've spoken about the ways that COVID you know, and lockdowns devastated people's lives on the show before. Do you think the conversations around love and human connection became even more imperative during lockdown and, and that social connection and the role that it plays in our health perhaps became even more apparent. You know, I'm thinking of, you know, the awful social distancing that everybody had to endure. I think so. And I think, I, you know, yes, I did. I, I wrote it during lockdown. I did a lot of my interviews for the book during lockdown. In a way, it felt even more pertinent to talk to people about the people they loved because they weren't able to be with them in many cases. And I think it made us all realise at a, at a personal level how important those relationships were because I spoke to a lot of people who said they felt a pain, an emptiness, something that was missing in their lives. Certainly a lot of people struggled with their mental health during lockdown. And And a lot of that was because that social connection was not there. And I think hopefully one of maybe the upsides of that lockdown is it made people realise that, again, when everything else has gone away, and life in one sense is very simple and very sort of finite in terms of being Mm. shut in your house, the thing you miss the most isn't, you know, going to work necessarily and doing your work or whatever it might be. It's actually, I miss just hugging the people I love. And I think that made people realise that fundamentally what matters is, is the relationships you're in. Yeah. I'm really keen to understand the neuroscience here behind love, you know, actually what's going on in our brains, because you write in your book that I'm quoting here, at its most basic level, love is biological bribery, which I love. <laughs> you know, what, what purpose then does our body, our kind of chemical makeup think that love has for us as a species? 
Okay, so yes, very cold, hard, horrible scientific statement there. <laughs> um, I must uh, just just to say, I do think love's much more complex than that. But yes, if we look at the evolutionary purpose of love, it was to aid our survival. So we're a cooperative species, and we need to cooperate to survive. So we cooperate to you know raise our children. I think if you've had children, you're all aware of the many many people it involves to raise a human child. We cooperate to learn everything we need to learn, social learning, and we cooperate just for basic subsistence. But the problem is, is that cooperation is really, really tough. Whilst it has all these positive aspects and we have to do it, it can be really tough. We know that cooperating with people is stressful sometimes, particularly if you don't like them. You have to exist in a hierarchy, um, which means that, you know, you are as an individual probably costing yourself something by being in this hierarchy, particularly if you're in the middle or down the bottom, which means you get access to things at a much slower rate than the people at the top, for example. Um, You know, you have to coordinate your day with people where ideally you might actually, for your own good, need to go and do something else. And also people lie and they cheat and they steal to be frank. And so you have to spend a lot of time watching out for those people because those will impact your survival negatively. So what evolution came up with was this set of neurochemicals which motivate us and then reward us for making the effort to be cooperative. And there are four of them. Everyone's heard of oxytocin, but it's much more complex than just oxytocin. So there's oxytocin, dopamine, serotonin, and beta endorphin. And they are all in this cocktail that's released at different times, at different stages of a relationship. And they all have a slightly different job to do in the relationship story. And they are the things that make you feel amazing when you're in love. They are the things that addict you to somebody that, and for example, then make it very painful when you split up. And they are also the ones that make it easier, make you more sociable, reward you for being more sociable so that you will actually make the effort to build those really survival critical relationships. That's so interesting to look at it, you know, from from that level. I, I I talk a lot, you know, with with you know microbiome specialists, for example, about the gut brain axis and releasing happy mm. chemicals and, and endorphins and things. But I've never really heard it put into that context before. We'll come on to each of those because I think each of those four are really interesting. The one that I'd never heard of, and maybe is new to my listeners here too, are beta endorphins. So mm. can you give us an idea of what they do and 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 what they are and why they're important? Yeah, sure. So beta endorphin is a very ancient chemical, actually. It evolved to be part of your pain killing system in your body. So if you hurt yourself, beta endorphin is what's released. But we also release beta endorphin in lots of other circumstances as well. You know, if you're if you love your exercise, that feeling you get after a, a really good run or a really good gym session, that's sort of euphoria and that slightly addictive element of, you know, wanting to go and do it again, that's beta endorphin. And we release beta endorphin when we laugh, when we sing, when we dance, when we do lots of different things, when we touch in particular. But beta endorphin is the chemical of long-term love. So What makes human relationships very special compared to even those of our closest primate friends is that they last an incredibly long time. They can last decades. Um, And also we have lots of different sorts of relationships. A lot of animals only have what we call reproductively based relationships. So they will have a relationship with their mate and they may have a relationship with their offspring. And that's pretty much it. And they're all based about reproduction and passing those genes on directly. We have lots of platonic relationships, friendships, other family relationships, which aren't underpinned by the sexual relationship. And you need a chemical that will underpin those as well. Now, oxytocin, which underpins a lot of particularly small mammal relationships, is only really released in any great quantity during sex uh, and when we're sort of giving birth or we're breastfeeding or whatever. What we need is a a chemical that will underpin those long-term friendships as well. And the other thing about oxytocin is it's very short-lived. It's not capable of underpinning a relationship for decades because we become immune to it. It, Really? Okay, so it's not terribly helpful. Yeah. Gosh, so that that kind of early passion then that that you might get in the beginning of a new relationship, is that being driven by oxytocin? But the reason that it diminishes and wear off is is because you can't sustain it. Yeah, so that's being driven very much by oxytocin and dopamine. Yeah, those are the chemicals that are really key at the start of a relationship. But when the relationship starts to mature and it starts to become much, much deeper we start to build an attachment to somebody, then beta endorphin steps in because beta endorphin is an opiate. 
It's addictive. It's like heroin or morphine. And that's how it underpins long-term relationships. It does it by addicting you to being with that person. Really? And when you go away from that person, you go into cold turkey like you would if you were a heroin addict. And then you're drawn back to the, to the source of that wonderful opiate high. So it's a very simple mechanism, actually. Mm. But the wonderful thing about beta endorphin is we do not grow tolerant to it. So it will always be able to underpin it. And and because it's released by lots of different activities beyond sex, like, you know, laughing and chatting and touching and, you know, dancing and all these things, it can underpin all those platonic relationships we have. You know, so you go to a comedy club with your friends and have a good old laugh and that's yeah. helping you bond. So it's a really, really powerful chemical. I think we get fixated on oxytocin, partly because it's very easy to study. Beta endorphin is very hard to study. And secondly, because a lot of the early studies of love were done on little furry rodents. And <laughs> little furry rodents are great, but they're not actually a good parallel for the human brain. So we needed to look elsewhere. And in fact, we found beta endorphin in our closest primate relatives. And we found through studies at Oxford that it definitely is beta endorphin that is the chemical of long-term love. How absolutely fascinating. So we've touched there on oxytocin. What about things like serotonin? Where, where does that come in? Serotonin is a really interesting one, actually. And serotonin, still, we're still studying serotonin because it's a bit of a tricky one. Because what's interesting about serotonin is when you fall in love with somebody, oxytocin and dopamine go up in your system. And we can talk a little bit later about what they're doing. But serotonin goes down, which is kind of counterintuitive because we see serotonin as kind of a happy chemical. Mm. And it's like, well, that's a bit weird. You know, you should be happy at the start of a relationship. But this is actually not the role for serotonin in in this love cocktail. The role for serotonin is in obsessive love. So you have to be vaguely obsessed with the person you're in love with to bother to coordinate your time with them, to be bothered to ask them how they are. Because all of these things take energy, they take time, they take brain power. Mm. And the reason why we identify serotonin in this role is because people with obsessive compulsive disorder have very low circulating serotonin. So low levels seem to feed obsession. And as I said, you you don't want extreme obsession in a relationship, obviously, because that's not healthy. But you do need a little bit of it. And it explains, for example, when you're in the start of a relationship, why you might daydream constantly about your new partner. Or, you know, Mm -hmm. when you've had a baby, you spend your whole time staring at photos of them or looking at their little toes or whatever it might be. And you probably bore your friends a little bit with how much you talk about your new baby. That's serotonin. That's serotonin. Oh, that's And it's really key at the start. I I love that. And I love the fact that it's key. You know, when, when I first got together with my boyfriend, I remember actually doing exactly that, boring my friends and my family to death (laughs) with endless photographs on my phone and like text (laughs) messaging going, oh, look, isn't he great? And, and, you know, everyone yawning. And, you know, there was actually a biochemical neurological reason why I was doing that and why that was important to cement the early relationship. Absolutely, because if you think in the early relationship, you have to learn so much about this new person. You have to focus so much upon them. And serotonin is going to help you, along with the other chemicals, to do that, to make sure that you take in all this information and you give that new relationship time and focus. Mm. And that's what serotonin is doing. Brilliant. What about dopamine then? What's that doing? Okay. Well, dopamine we can't really talk about without its little pal oxytocin, I'm afraid. So oxytocin (laughs) and dopamine actually work together. They don't, they tend to um, do things together when it comes to relationships. So at the start of a relationship, what oxytocin does is it lowers your inhibitions to being sociable. And it does that by quietening the fear center of your brain, which is known as the amygdala. So you imagine you see someone across a bar, you clap eyes on them, you think, wow, you're rather gorgeous. And what happens in your brain is oxytocin is released and oxytocin quietens that fear center. It relaxes you. It makes you feel a little bit more chilled. So, you know, that nagging voice in the back of your head that saps your confidence about the fact that you're going to walk across the bar and they're going to reject you in front of everybody and it's going to be horribly humiliating. That's quietened down. So it kind of emboldens you. Yeah, exactly. To make that move, Exactly. Yeah, perfect. An emboldening chemical, basically. At the same time as oxytocin is released, dopamine is released. And dopamine is your hormone of motivation, as well as being a reward, makes you feel nice. It's also your hormone of motivation. And it's needed because 
With oxytocin, you might be so chilled if it was on its own that you actually don't make any effort to get off the bar stool and go and talk to the person because you're having a lovely time on your own. So dopamine is the one that's going to give you a little bit of a kick and say, no, get off the bar stool and go and make an effort, please. And so that's what dopamine is doing. And then together at those very nanosecond, early, early moments, it's also working to make your brain more plastic and particularly in areas of the brain related to learning and memory. Because when you meet someone for the first time, you have to quickly encode, learn a lot of information about them, their name, what they sound like, what they look like, what their interests are, all these sorts of things. And dopamine and oxytocin make that much easier for your brain to do and much easier for you then to encode that into your memory so it's there to easily retrieve the next time you meet them. Basically, Gosh, that is is fa- absolutely fascinating, and presumably, are, are these controlled or determined genetically? You know, we we talk a lot about epigenetics on this show, particularly in terms mm. of things like weight loss and chronic illness and, yes. and that kind of thing. Do we have certain gene expressions then that will basically determine how we're going to fall in love and how we're going to sustain our relationships? As with all genetics, it's not deterministic. So there's always a gene environment interaction. Um, and some genes have more of an interaction than others. Um, but certainly love is quite strongly underpinned by a set of genes that's associated actually with those neurochemicals. So one of them is the oxytocin receptor gene. And that has 26 point mutations on it, which vary between individuals and do definitely influence things like how likely you are to want to be in a relationship, for example, how motivated you are to be in a relationship, how happy you'll be when you're in the relationship, how good you are at maintaining the relationship. So things like, you know, intimate disclosure, vulnerability, how good you are at romantic words, romantic talking, and also things like it can influence things like your attachment style, which 10 years ago, we thought attachment style was entirely environmental. But actually, there is an aspect of it that is under genetic control. So certainly some of the way you behave and how you feel will be down to your genes, but it is heavily influenced, particularly within terms of things like attachment by the environment, particularly the one in which you developed. So it's complicated, but we did a a really big study at Oxford looking at the genetic determinants of love um, and all sorts of love. So not just romantic love, but friendship, love, family, love, community love. And certainly there are genes that influence how people behave. Fascinating. Well, let's pause here. Um, When we come back, I really want to talk about how we love and how that changes as we age. And particularly, let's dig into those attachment styles um, and also whether it's really possible perhaps to die of a broken heart. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. 
So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Well, in your book, Anna, you discuss a 2010 study by psychologist Julianne Holt Lundstedt that concluded that being within a supportive social network, you know, reduced our risk of mortality by 50%, by half. Um, and I think there are so many more conversations now about how stress, you know, something that we might think of as emotional or psychological, has a real effect on our physical bodies. You know, do we need to be thinking about love and relationships in the same way? Absolutely. I mean, I think we can now say, because that's obviously 2010, 14 years ago. Since then, there have been many, many studies that have replicated those results and strengthened those results. And I think we can now say absolutely fundamentally that the most important aspect of your mental and physical health, your well-being, your longevity is the relationships you create with other people. Because they are, as you said, 50%. That is sort of tallying alongside quitting smoking and it's much much stronger for example than maintaining a healthy weight so it's actually in a way the missing health phenomenon yes because we in the way we take our relationships for granted you know we do all those things which you're told to be healthy like you know drink lots of water eat the right food exercise all those sorts of things but nobody actually says do you know what just go out and have a lovely cup of tea with a friend yeah and actually that is incredibly powerful and we are still unraveling why. Mm-hmm. There are various suggestions. Some of them are behavioral. So, for example, if you're in a supportive social network, you are more likely to get practical and emotional help, for example. So, if you get yourself in a sticky situation, if you're poorly, for example, or if you're stressed, there's more likely to be people there who will take some of that burden or who will care for you while you're sick. Yeah. Um, it might be that, again, if you've got people around you and you have to adhere, for example, to a particular health regime, they might help you stay on the straight and narrow and therefore maintain your health. But also it's, there are two things going on, we think, biologically as well. One is that we think beta endorphin underpins your immune system as well. So when beta endorphin is released, it kind of ramps up your white blood cell count and it ramps up those, those immune cells that are going to help fight disease. And the second thing is, is that when all those lovely chemicals are released, our stress levels are reduced. So if you release oxytocin, dopamine, beta endorphin, serotonin, they actually counteract cortisol, which we all know is the stress hormone. So the two cannot coexist. So one of the best ways to de-stress is to be with a group of people who who you love and who support you. When you look at the way humans have evolved, it's actually like a no-brainer, like, well, of course. But I think we've kind of sidelined it a bit and the other thing to say the reason why we've kind of arrived at this as well and it's in the title of my book that love is a need love is actually not an emotion Mm -hmm. love is a survival critical need and it sits alongside those other survival critical needs such as food water and shelter Um, so if you don't have love in your life then you will definitely experience detriment you will for example if we look at a baby that doesn't receive love for a start, yes. it actually has a much higher risk of not surviving. Yes, but even sure. if it survives, yeah. in terms of things like brain development, it is already on, a, on unfortunately, a negative track in life. So it's actually absolutely fundamental to your development, to your health, to your mental health, your longevity, your well-being, and just your life satisfaction. And, and as I said, for those of us who study evolution, it's kind of a no-brainer, but it's something I think that hasn't come to light publicly enough yet. Well, I think we definitely need to get you in a position of power here. You need to be joining (laughs) Sage and Cobra. And so that, you know, when they hit us with the next thing, you can be saying, look, guys, we're not locking down. We're actually all going to get out and have a large party. And we're going to hug as many people as we can to improve our immune system. Exactly. (laughs) Actually, talking about hugging, you know, I have read that, you know, I don't know how many it is. Is Some people say three hugs a day. Some people eight hugs a day. You know, the actual act of hugging, is this why it's so important then? Because it's having an impact on the beta endorphins, which are influencing and supporting our immune system. Yes, absolutely. And touch is the most important generator of of social neurochemicals. If you want a really big ramped up effect, touch someone. 
So that's why hugging is so important. And it's, you know, I mean, these studies that say you need three, you need eight, they're kind of, yeah. Um, But it's the quality of the hug and it's the person you do the hug with. Okay, so it's got to be someone that, you know, you are attached to that, you know, you you do love that doesn't cause you stress. Um, It's a good quality hug, but certainly Mm -hmm. and touch is really, really critical. You know, in my other area of study, you know, I study parents and children. And that's why when a baby's Mm. born, skin to skin contact is the most important thing, because touch is the first sense that we have that is really heightened. And it's the one that does release the most love chemicals. And then for those listening who may be living on their own, have, you know, touching pets, stroking and hugging, you know, can have a similar effect. It doesn't always have to be human, does it? Absolutely, no. And again, that's why I wrote the book, because I think we focus very much, first of all, we have a bit of an obsession with romantic love. Yeah. Then we have a bit of obsession with human to human love. But actually, no, pet love is just as important. All you need is someone in your life that you love and returns that love. And if that's a dog, if that's a cat, you know, if it's a, I don't know, pet bird, whatever it might be. I had a very, I was very fond of my gerbil, I have to say, but he wasn't very good at hugging, but I did love him. No, it was very sad. But exactly. And we do experience love. You know, we've done fMRI studies on dog owners and Uh all these sorts of things. And it is love. And so it doesn't matter what you love, as long as it's a healthy love and you can involve touch, go for it. That's that's great. So coming back to the, the romantic love then, this idea of, of dying of a broken heart, presumably when mm. the person that you love and that you're used to touching and being with is no longer with us in this world. You know, could that then be scientifically possible? It is scientifically possible. Um, we, in the first six months, for example, after a, a, a romantic partner has died, particularly if you're older, you have a much increased chance of dying yourself. And I think we all anecdotally know of these stories. And it can be it can be for a biological reason. So somebody dying causes increased stress on the body and it causes increased stress, particularly on the circulatory system and the heart. So you do actually have an increased chance of dying, for example, of a heart attack during that period. Also, when somebody dies or when somebody, for example, leaves you, Um, you go into massive chemical withdrawal. And because B-trendorphin is also underpins your pain system, suddenly that high level of painkiller that's been circulating in your system disappears. And suddenly all the little aches and pains that it's been covering because you've been in a relationship suddenly come to the fore. And that's why it can be actually physically painful for somebody to leave you or for someone to die because you suddenly have gone from this lovely high level to literally rock bottom and gone into opiate withdrawal. And you actually do get that physical pain, don't you? People, you know, say, you do. I can't bear yeah. it. I hurt so yeah. much. And, you know, it's yeah, the emotional exactly. hurt, and the everything trauma. Can but hurt. The, yeah, everything physically. Yeah. How interesting that there's an actual biochemical reason why that is happening in our bodies. Absolutely. And then obviously you have psychological pain because when we are with somebody, whether it's romantic or not, we take them into our identity. So part of our identity is the fact we have a relationship with that other person. And we might define ourselves with the word, you know, wife, girlfriend, you know, mother, daughter, whatever it might be. Um, And when that person goes, part of your identity goes. And that's really hard to deal with because suddenly you have to rejig who you are. And that's hard. And it's not just something you necessarily consciously do, but your brain has to work that out as, okay, who am I now? because this person has gone and now I'm a different person too. And so it's a, when someone leaves you or when someone dies, it's highly complex. It's a complex mix of the psychological and the biological coming together to make it you know, a, a really physically and psychologically painful situation. I guess that leads me on to talking about attachment and being attached to people. Mm. And, you know, people listening to this now might be aware of some of the different attachment styles. Certainly if you've looked at Mm. relationships or looked at psychology or talked to relationship counsellors, there seem to be different styles of attachment, don't there? Whether they're sort of avoidant or super attached, or I I can't remember Mm. all the different terms. Can you talk us (laughs) through what those styles are and and see, you know, which ones we might perhaps identify with and which Mm. are perhaps positive, which maybe might be slightly more negative, maybe in terms of our Mm. relationship? and ability to love okay so it there are different sort of it gets attachment gets complicated because there are different measures depending upon which relationship you're in so let's talk about romantic relationships so there are four attachment styles in romantic relationships there's secure there's preoccupied there's fearful avoidant and there's dismissing avoidant and the way we categorize people is based upon where they sit on two dimensions the first is how anxious are they about being left in that relationship 
And the second is, how comfortable are they with proximity to that person? So if we look at a secure person, they are high in proximity, so they're very comfortable in proximity, but they're very low in anxiety, so they don't spend a lot of time worrying that the person's going to leave them. And so the secure person, in a way, some people might say is like the the pinnacle of attachment is to be secure, because you are very comfortable in a relationship, you are happy to be supported in that relationship and be supporting back, but you don't need that relationship to define you, nor indeed to enable you to function. So you are a very secure person. And is that because you've come from a secure family background, perhaps? Your, your parents have always been there to support you? Generally, it is. Your attachment style isn't actually fixed. So you can actually change your attachment style. So I'll say to you, when I first met my partner, my husband, I was preoccupied, which meant I was highly anxious about being left. Uh, and that's because my upbringing wasn't that great. Mm-hmm. I am now secure. And that's because my husband, over the God knows how many decades we've been together, <laughs> has shown me that he's not going to leave me. And so I have shifted. So you can shift. But yes, generally, if you are a secure person, it's generally because you were secure, securely attached to your to your parents or your carers as a child. So conversely, then the, the opposite might might be true, that if you're avoidant or preoccupied, it's because yes. you haven't had that at home. Yes. So if you are children who are in insecure attachments, either anxious or or um, disorganized, which is one of the ones we use for children, or ambivalent, then they are more likely to be one of the more anxious or dismissing attachment styles when they're older. So if we look at preoccupied, preoccupied people are high in proximity seeking, so they like to be close to people, but they're high in anxiety. So they worry a lot that that person's going to leave them. And the way they deal with that is by maintaining proximity because by being with that person you know we might call them clingy um that person cannot stray because i've got my eye on you the entire time <laughs> okay. so they're preoccupied yeah, yeah and then we have the two avoidance styles so there's a uh, fearful avoidant and like preoccupied they are very anxious about being left but the way they deal with it is by avoiding proximity avoiding intimacy because if they don't have a relationship they can't get hurt so they avoid it And the last category is dismissing avoidant. And dismissing avoidant people are low in anxiety and low in proximity. And we kind of see these people as the island. They're the sorts of people who don't really need or necessarily want a relationship. They they don't avoid them because they're anxious about it. They're just not that fussed, really. (laughs) I will say the dismissing avoidant category is the one with the lowest number of people in it. Most people do want a relationship and even dismissing avoidant people will end up in relationships but they are they can be quite a tricky customer to be in a relationship with I would say fascinating and I'm fascinated we know when you meet people or when you fall in love perhaps for the first time or or you're coming out of a relationship and you find a new new person I was talking to somebody the other day who was talking about how he felt when he met his wife and he you know used the expression you know it was a coup de foudre it was literally our eyes met across the crowded room and that was it you know we just knew mm. what what would have been going on in the brain then i mean is is there something kind of i don't know it's almost kind of spellbinding and magical and and can <laughs> that ever be created because it just sounds amazing <laughs> Yes. Yeah, so, yes. Um, I mean, I will put a dampener on things by saying love at first sight doesn't exist. And we can oh, talk shame. about it a little bit later. But certainly, <laughs> um, you can certainly, um, yes, that massive whoosh of wow, feeling amazing, chemicals, everything. So what happens in your brain when you see someone you you are attracted to is the reason why you feel like that is there's an algorithm in your brain which is assesses lots of different sensory inputs from that person. So it'll be what they look like, what they sound like, how they move, if you're close enough, how they smell, um, all these different things. And it will put that algorithm together. It's very complicated. And it will work out whether this person is a good person for you. And the reason why I say that is we all have a thing called a biological market value on our heads. And that biological market value is based upon how likely you are to be reproductively successful, i.e. how likely you are to have kids and pass those genes down, because that's all really evolution cares about. And the relationships that work best is when you are with someone of similar biological market value to yourself. And so your algorithm in your head takes all this sensory information in, takes into account a few other things like, am I looking for a short-term relationship or a long-term relationship? Because depending on which one you're looking for, it's slightly different what you will look for in a partner. If it fits nicely with your biological market value then it'll go ping 
lovely. Lots of oxytocin and dopamine will be released in a particular area of the brain called the nucleus accumbens. You'll become mont- you know, amazingly confident. You'll yeah. suddenly feel terribly motivated. You'll feel euphoric because you've had a lovely hit of dopamine and you'll go across the bar and say hello. So that is what was happening in, in right. that person's head. It sounds a bit like a slot this, machine. It was obviously ping. <laughs> Yes. Yeah, it is. It's you know, a little bit like your all, your, comes up. all the Woo-hoo! cherries come up in a line yeah. and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> it uh, it off all fits you go. together. And interestingly that you talk about things like smell. And in your book, you describe mm. a number of different studies. You know, there's the T-shirt test where, you know, guys have worn yes. T-shirts and then women were asked yep. to identify their, you know, the, the, the most likely fit. And that's down to a yes. genetic predisposition, which is then secreted through the sweat onto the T-shirt. I mean, it, it's absolutely yes. fascinating that all these things are happening in a blink of an eye without us consciously being aware that our brains are processing going yeah this pheromone is right this chemical means that this person has this yeah. particular attribute inside their bodies yeah. within them that's invisible but we sense it and we think that they're a good fit so we're going to go for it absolutely and what you've got to remember is we've evolved all the other mammals particularly the lesser mammals are highly sensory creatures they get all their information from their senses now what we've done is we've still got that ability but on top of that we have a massive neocortex that does lots of thinking as well so we actually have a conscious element of love as well but that sensory bit is still there it hasn't disappeared it's just you're just Mm. not aware of it that you're doing it so you're actually you know when people talk to me about you know algorithms on dating apps and all that sort of thing I do say to them you will never build an algorithm as good as your brain because it's had millions of years of evolution to be really really good at this And so, you know, it is taking in so much information. And then, you know, a little bit later when your conscious brain kicks in, then even more information is going to be considered because then we start consciously thinking about the suitability of this person. So, you know... Um, you know, do they have similar values to me? You know, um, uh, well, my family like them. Uh, do we have matching cultures? All these sorts of things that you will then also, you know, are my friends going to like them? And you start to think about all these other things consciously. So there's so much information that goes into whether or not somebody is the right person for you. It's interesting that we do actually have a number of phrases that that describe the physical sensations of love, you know, having butterflies in our stomach or feeling lovesick. You know, I was interested to read in your book about the physiological manifestations of jealousy, for example. You know, so mm. are all these feelings then physical are they are they reality it's not just something in our head no they're completely reality and the reason why jealousy is very physical is it's jealousy is there to bring your attention to a threat to your relationship um and the idea is is that you know you you can then decide what you're going to do are you going to cut your losses are you going to increase the investment in your relationship are you going to confront the person who is threatening to take away your partner whatever it might be and so it feels very physical because we need your attention and so absolutely you will feel sick you will sweat your heart will race you'll feel shaky you might get a headache you know all of these things are there to draw your attention to this survival threatening possibility and the fact that you need to do something about it so our physical bodies are very involved in our relationships you know we literally as I said at the beginning every single fiber in your being is involved in your relationships every single mechanism in your body is because they're so important to you we can't really get this wrong you've got to try and get it right and therefore evolution has seen fit to make sure that everything is attending to that relationship for you Completely fascinating. And I guess moving on to a broader look at social connections, so broadening it out from the idea of romantic love into the love of our community. Fascinating to to see in your book the diagram about how many people kind of are in our circle, you know, five very close to us, then it spreads to 15 and then then closer, um, you know, as it kind of spreads out and and we get wider. And I was very interested to see that particularly for, for this audience here, there seems to be an increase for women around the age of 50, so around menopause time, that we actually start to expand our social Mm. connections. And is that because perhaps hormonally we're wanting to share information, we might feel that we need a bit more support, we might need to feel that we're not alone in what we're going through, you know, have anthropologists have looked at this from a menopausal perspective? Absolutely. Yes. So it's really interesting. And and that 50 line is particularly fascinating in women, actually, sort of, yeah, the, the, the age around menopause. Because what it seems to be is, first of all, women have shed that role of being reproductive. They've probably Mm. got their kids off their hands if they've had children. And suddenly what they need out of life and what they want out of life shifts. 
And for many women, it shifts more towards friendship than, for example, back to their partner. And, you know, not meaning to be a downer, but there is a big increase in divorce instigated by women after the age of 50. Because suddenly you're in this you're in this situation where this person you were with was a great partner and you selected them consciously or not as a parent with you. And suddenly maybe you need something else out of life now because you you've lost you've shed those responsibilities. You know, hormonally, you're not in that place anymore. And therefore, we tend to find that women do tend to start shifting their perspective towards their friends rather than towards their partner or towards a new partner. Somebody who's going to meet Mm -hmm. different needs that they now have. Somebody to grow old with. So it might be somebody who, you know, is more companionate, maybe. Somebody who you can rely on who's going to care for you and you can care for them. Or maybe you've got to this point where you just want a new adventure and therefore you want a new partner who's willing to, you know, grab a bag and go around the world with you or whatever it might be. (laughs) And we find that women's friendships at that point become much, much more important. And for women, very early on at Oxford, we did a study comparing men's and women's friendships and romantic relationships. And what we found is women tend to be, regardless of age, more emotionally intimate with their female best friend than they are with their romantic partner. Women's friends are a special, special group. Mm, in terms of what? Conversation and things that you might share? In terms of conversation, you are much more likely to reveal something very intimate, something maybe very painful or maybe something very private mm. to your female best friend than you necessarily are to your romantic partner. You're, much, you're likely to be much more vulnerable in front of them. And that's probably because I, when I wrote my chapter on friends, I interviewed lots of women about their friendships. And what they always say to me about their friendships is it's a group of women who are just completely there for you, completely unjudgmental. They've seen you in your best times. They've seen you in your worst times. And they're there for you. And you can't necessarily say that about a partner necessarily. No. So that it's like there's 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 no strings. I was really struck by when you wrote in your book about female friendship and about how as women we tend to have our female friends are very often similar, similar in our outlook, maybe in what they do, our our connections, our, our communities, our interests. Whereas when we select a romantic partner, that person may actually be very different because mm. we're looking for somebody to support us in other ways. And, yes, you know, absolutely. so maybe, you know, maybe having that kind of simpatico relationship with girlfriends is, I guess, understandable because they're in a similar position to us and they're likely perhaps to, to understand when we open up and, and not be judgmental or, you know, we can we can lose some of the fear perhaps around that. Is the same true for guys? Do, do, do guys have, you know, good male friends that they can also be kind of intimately <sighs> men, men open are, men with? Men are interesting. Mm, men yeah, they tend are. to not... <laughs> And they tend to not have, it's quite rare for a man to have a best friend. Is it? What men tend to have is they tend to have a group of friends who are kind of loosely attached to each other and they tend to be brought together, for example, by a shared interest. So, I don't know, cars or football or whatever it might be, poetry, whatever it might be. They tend to, and when men get together, they're very unlikely to just sit and chat They will generally do something. Then they might chat while they're doing it, but they will tend to do something. Whereas women are much more likely Mm. to have much more intimate groups and even, you know, meet quite regularly one-on-one with a a friend. Much more likely to say they have a best friend or a couple of best friends. And for those relationships to be very much based on talk and the sharing of intimate details. So it's, it's very different. And when we look at male best friendships, when you say to a man, what do you get out of your male best friendship? In a way, it is a similar sanctuary for the man, because again, the tensions that can exist in a romantic relationship aren't there. But what they right. tend to say is they tend to find like a shared sense of humour and a shared yes. ability just to relax and be yourself. Yeah, It's slightly different. It's not about sharing intimacy. It's, it's, it's a different way of dealing with friendship. So to conclude then, you know, in terms of the health and the well-being benefits that we often focus on this particular show, when we're looking at love here, does it really matter what type of love it is? You know, whether it's romantic, familial, maybe even with a, a god or your, your spiritual guide or your community, you know, as long as there is that connection and that sense of love. Or do you think there are types of love that we should really be definitely aiming to achieve and like tick the boxes to ensure health and well-being? Uh, no, you're no, you're absolutely right. It doesn't matter what the sort of love is. So, you know, it doesn't have to be romantic. It doesn't have to be parental. You just have to find someone or something to love in your life. That's the And that's, again, why I wrote the books. I wanted to say to people, let's just realise it's not a hierarchy. 
so romantic love is not at the top as the pinnacle of achievement. Really? It's, it's just it's just flat. It's horizontal. It's just a spectrum. Mm-hmm. Okay. So pick the love that works for you. And, you know, make sure it's a healthy love. That's the most important thing. Make sure it's mutually supportive and go for it. It really, really doesn't matter. But it is critical to your health that you do have love in your life. Brilliant. What a great note to end on. Anna, thank you so much. And, and congrats on the book. It's absolutely fascinating, riveting stuff. I'm going to be reading and rereading it. So thank you. Thank you so much. Anna, what a fascinating look at something we can perhaps take for granted. So thank you so much for your time. Well, has any of this made you think differently about how you prioritise the relationships in your life? Do let me know on Instagram. We are at Lizelle Wellbeing and I'm on there too, at Lizelle Me. Or I tell you what else you can do. You can email me now to tell me your stories and indeed ask me your questions. So in a few weeks time, I'm going to be giving you the reins. What do you want to ask me about living a better second half? What do you want to learn more about? What are you intrigued to implement in your own life? Well, you can now email podcast at lizarwellbeing.com and I might just be answering your question on the show very soon. And of course, if you'd like to listen to that and all other episodes ad-free, you can subscribe to the Lizar Wellbeing Show Plus on Apple Podcasts for a very small monthly fee and you'll get to listen to all future episodes 24 hours before everyone else too. While I've got you here, I would also love to tell you about the new book that I have written, you may have guessed. It is called A Better Second Half, and it has been a real labour of love, taken several years and is the culmination really of many, many decades of my own personal experience of well-being, what works, what doesn't, health hacks, especially for midlife women, midlife and beyond, how to have a truly better second half. Mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually, so many things I cover. I really can't wait. Now, if you'd like to pre-order, it is up on Amazon now, pre-order. Get your order in early because it will be released at the end of April. Or of course, you can pre-order from your local bookseller. Always a good idea to support the local book trade. Anyway, until the next time we chat, go well. Goodbye. The Lizelle Wellbeing Show is presented by me, Lizelle, and is produced by Anushka Tate for Fresh Air Production, with additional production support from Ellie Smith. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.